The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Jason, Matthew, and my wife, Marcy, for leading us in music this morning. Well, we are indeed in Genesis chapter 21, but, but before we go there, please, please turn with me to Matthew, Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 37 is what we're going to be looking at. Jesus has in here, he has clear instructions on making promises. And I love the call to worship this morning, Nathan. It was just beautifully fitting. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Let's go ahead and read that together. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And this is Jesus speaking. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. An oath or a solemn promise. You can turn back to Genesis 21. Jesus takes serious the promises we make. He takes serious the promises we make, saying... To not swear by anything to verify that it will be done, but simply let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In light of the Lord's instruction here, I I rarely, if at all, use the word promise or, or make a vow. You know, not that it's wrong to do so but that there is great weight behind doing so. That wasn't always the case for me, but it is now. Oftentimes, along with my yes, if that's what I am saying, it'll be like, yes, you know, I, I aim to do so, or I have full intentions, Lord willing. Because in all honesty, something may come up that prevents it from being fulfilled. Or in honesty, I simply fail. I simply fail to fall through as I said I would. And this could be something in the, in the realm of, hey, Dad, you know, can we, can we play catch later on today, this afternoon? You know, I, I'd love to, son. And there should be no reason we, why, why we won't be able to. You know, so let's, let's plan on it. And what is intended to take place takes place most of the time. But there are times 
where I don't follow through for a number of reasons. Some are justifiable ones, but also by cause of simply failing on my part to do so. And that hurts. That hurts. Whether it be not playing catch with my son or of commitments of much greater magnitude. We all know that place of being promise breakers. Ourselves, being promise breakers ourselves, and also being the recipient of promises made to us being broken. In our fallen, sinful state, this takes place. There is one. There is one, however, and one only, who never breaks his promises. That's why I said that that psalm, the call to worship is so fitting. Like, I have sworn in my holiness. Like, this is God swearing now. In my holiness, I will not lie to David. He will establish his covenant forever. I mean, he even gives us the sun and the moon as a faithful witness in the skies over and over and over again. He never breaks his promises. Our everlasting Father, our God, is a promise keeper. He makes promises and he fulfills every last one of them. Our God is a promise keeper. And that is the pinnacle truth I want us to receive deep into our hearts this morning. Receive and remain abiding. Our God is a promise keeper. Now, with this abiding in our heart, in your heart, yours and mine, I aim to expound upon it in threefold measure in today's sermon. First and foremost, like every promise God makes, they get fulfilled. Shown to us by example in seeing God's promise to Abraham come to pass in the birth of Isaac. God's promise fulfilled. Our first point. Promise fulfilled. Looking back in Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7 is where we see that. So read with me the first two verses of of the seven we'll be going through, we'll be looking at with this point, and note the intentionality in God's word to emphasize God's promised fulfilled. Just hear the the intentionality there, saints, and receive it as a comfort to your soul where any trouble lies upon your heart and either growing weary or in bearing frightful doubt of waiting upon God to come through on his promises. So let's go ahead and read that. Verse two. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God has spoken to him. Did you hear that? 
as he had said, as he had promised, at the time, God says a year from there. Remember that? That was just two chapters ago. At the time, God has spoken to him. Promise fulfilled. God will fulfill every promise of his at the proper time. So with that, what, what promise or promises of God's right now in this season of life, in this season of life of yours, are you waiting on him for? Perhaps, perhaps it involves the promises in God's word as it relates to raising children. Maybe it's promises of God in assuring us of his provision in our lives. Food, shelter, clothing. Maybe it's in regards to relationships. Relationships with non-believers, with believers, and those closest to us. As he had said... As he had promised, at the time God had spoken to him. God's promise made to Abraham, as we just read, was fulfilled. By faith, we believe in the same God as Abraham believed. And by faith, we worship the same God as Abraham worshiped. And by faith, we can trust the same God as Abraham trusts that he will fulfill every promise that he makes. Our response to God on this truth is represented well here in the next five verses. The response is one of obedience and testimony. Let's read these five verses and identify them along the way, starting with verses three and four. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah, had, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. When did this command come? Do you guys recall? Back in Genesis 17, verse 19, to be specific. One of the times God was reassuring to Abraham of his covenant with him. There's one of those moments. And Abraham, very old, he's 99 years old to be precise, still childless. He's pleading with God that the promise would come through his son Ishmael, who's already born, right? He's pleading. Born to him by Hagar, who at that time was 13 years old. God said no. No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. There's the command. There's one of those two. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Abraham obeys God on his command, now seeing with his own very eyes the fulfillment of it. He names his son Isaac, which means one, one who laughs or, or one who rejoices. And Abraham continues his obedience to God by circumcising his son, Isaac, on the eighth day of life, as instructed by God in verses 10 
through 14 of that same chapter 17 in Genesis. God gives those commands to Abraham. Abraham's witnessing the fulfillment of it and obeys, just as God told him to. And this is all to say, all to say that obedience and God's promises go hand in hand. Obedience and God's promises go hand in hand. And for strong emphasis on this, I offer to you, I offer to you to read, not now but later, but read Deuteronomy chapter 28, the entire chapter. These passages provide clear layout of the great blessing for obedience and the troubling curses for disobedience. Now listen, we may not be facing nations in war, nor have crops to harvest that we depend upon alone as the source of our food. But the principles that are in there, church, the principles that are in there, obtained in the treasure of God's word in those passages, the principles are wise to take seriously of obedience and God's promises going hand in hand. You may be asking well, what do I obey? Like, like, I'm not knowledgeable in God's word. I just don't know a lot. I believe in Jesus, but I just, I'm new to the, to, to the text. I'm new to scripture. What do I obey? I know very little. To this, I would say, obey what you know. Obey what you know. Obey God and what you know and regularly seek to know God more And as he reveals more of himself to you, which is another promise that he will do when you seek him with all your heart, as he reveals more of himself to you, continue to respond to his grace in doing so by obedience to what he reveals. God's word sanctifies. John 17, 17. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. God's word sanctifies, which which means, to put it in very simple terms, it exposes sin in your life. By the working of the spirit of God, the word of God exposes sin to confess, repent, and turn away from, and it leads you in it leads you to greater manifestations of Christ's likeness in your life. God's word sanctifies. Those are the two chief ways that that takes place. Obedience and God's promises go hand in hand. As do the wonderful testimonies we have the joy to share about to the glory of God, of his promises believed by faith coming to pass in our lives. You know, just just giving testimony. Look at verses 5 through 7. Let's go ahead and read that. 5 through 7. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. It's like, I just picture Sarah in a conversation with one of the ladies in the town, you know? It's just like she's saying, do you you want to hear something amazing? Like, I was barren. 
like forever barren, have always been barren. And menopause, that ship sailed long ago. That's past. And check it out now. I'm nursing. Like I'm nursing my son whom I gave birth to by guess who? The hundred, my hundred year old husband over there, Abraham. Just as God promised I would. The other lady's like, what? You're kidding, right? No, not in the least. We have even given him the name Isaac, as God told us to, which means, get this, one who laughs and one who rejoices. How fitting is that, right? That's amazing. That lady's like, wow, that's amazing. Even laughing, like, I can't believe it. I am seeing, now listen, I am seeing the impossible with my own very eyes. And that is it, isn't it? Seeing the impossible with our own very eyes. God's promises fulfilled. The, the impossible being witnessed with our, by our own very eyes. Church, we are, we are to testify to that, that we may bring glory to his name. Another question then. Another question to lay before you. What promises of God have come to pass that you may give testimony to and thereby bring glory to his name? What ones have come to pass? You know, think on what they are. Know them. Know them well and testify to them. Here's a warm-up for you. Here's a warm-up. Just get the engine going there. If you love Jesus, if you love Jesus, give testimony of God's saving faithfulness in your life. That promise is found in Psalm 69, 13, in his saving faithfulness. I mean, you you, you know, Christians prayed for me. My parents prayed for me. Christians shared Jesus with me. My parents shared Jesus with me. My spouse did. My neighbor. I mean, Jesus was shared with me. The gospel was shared with me. And God, who is rich in mercy, answered their their prayers and worked powerfully in me to believe in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. For those who shared the gospel message with me, embodied Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Like, I'm a recipient of this, and now I just, of first importance, share it with you. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The message of the cross of Jesus Christ. For the word of the cross is, you know this, folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I know this power. I know I'm forgiven. I I know this power. God has saved me. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God has saved me. I believe. Like that is a testimony. I testify to his promise to powerfully save sinners such as I, who now loves him and longs to be with Jesus continually, who is my Lord and Savior. 
God is a promise keeper who fulfills every promise made. (sighs) Promises we are to walk in, Christian. We are to walk in, amen? And this, this, is, this is where God's word is going to apply an uncomfortable and uncomfortable amount of pressure for all of us. For walking in God's promises means we are walking in freedom. And that's easy to say. It's easy to say, but not easy to fully do. The second point I'm stating as promise versus law. Seen in verses 8 through 21. Promise versus law. There is a story piece here that has some, has some heartache in it. It does. But it also has, it's also another beautiful testimony of our God being a promise keeper. Hagar and Ishmael. I say Hagar. I don't know why. You say Hagar. Maybe it's both. But Hagar and Ishmael. To refresh ourselves with who they are, And why they are here, I'll remind you of what we learned about them in chapter 16 of Genesis, five chapters ago. They were brought into the storyline of God's redemptive work by the ones he made a covenant with to do so, Abram and Sarai. Sarai devises a plan that Abraham doesn't flinch to get on board with. The plan, in essence, We're going to help God out. We are going to help God out. His promise has taken a while. Let's take matters into our own hands and and just get her done. Sarai, you know, she acquired a slave woman when they were in Egypt during the famine. Do you remember that? Even earlier chapters. She acquired a slave woman whose name was Hagar. And she, Sarai, took Hagar and gave her to Abram to have as his wife, that Sarai may have children through through her. That was the plan. That was a work of the flesh. This is a work of the flesh. It's not of the promise, but a work of the flesh. And it works in that Hagar conceived and bore a son to Abram, who named the child Ishmael. But this wasn't according to the promise. It was not according to the promise God made to Abraham, or Abram at the time is what he was called, and God would not, remember, God would not accept Ishmael, a work of the flesh. Would not accept the work of the flesh to be the one through whom God would fulfill his promise. God does show compassion to Hagar, which is such a beautiful story. Compassion to Hagar and the child, as we will see fulfilled here, or both then, but also here, because we see here also fulfilled in the text. But God does not accept this work of the flesh, which is now present. 
You know, it's present in the storyline. Hagar and Ishmael are present in the picture, and they are a regular contention piece within Abraham's household. So that is who they are and why they are here in the midst of all that is going on. That's why they're there. So back to the storyline piece now. Isaac is born. Isaac is born, and he's grown to the age of being weaned. So ancient Hebrew, ancient Hebrews completed weaning at about how many years old, do you think? Yeah, you're glad. That's what I'm thinking. Two or three. Two or three. I mean, he's not a baby. He's a toddler. He's weaned. And it's a party, apparently, because Abraham is throwing a party to celebrate it. And so we could, we could conservatively say Isaac at this point was at least two, at least, at least two, if not older, and likely so, which means Ishmael. Means Ishmael then is probably about 16 years of age at this point. We know he was 13 years old when he was circumcised. Back in chapter 17 tells us that. It's been, it's been over two years, if not three years now. He is a budding teenage boy. And we all know how bridled tongue and respectful teenage boys can be. <laughs> right on cue with that, Ishmael laughs at this party for his younger brother, half-brother. Laughs at him, which we can understand to be an act of Mockery. You know, this isn't the laugh of Isaac, one to rejoice and like, wow, God is amazing. No, it's mockery. It's hammering him. A laugh for, it's, a, it's, a, it's ex- forms of expression that, that exhibit clear mockery at a target. The target, the toddler Isaac, the deliverer Ishmael, the 16-year-old teenager. Mama bear Sarah, who witnessed the whole thing, doesn't miss a beat. Like she is on it. She goes straight to Abraham in verse 10 saying, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And this is very upsetting to Abraham and understandably so. But watch this in verse 12 and 13. God says to Abraham, be not displeased. Be not displeased because of the boy. That'd be Ishmael. Because, because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. God doesn't rebuke Sarah for such a harsh demand to her husband, but rather affirms it. Why? Why? Hold that question, okay? Just hold it there. We'll get there shortly. First, let's let's finish the storyline. God affirms Sarah's demand to Abraham to cast out this slave woman with her son, as if saying, these two, you know, the, the son of the promise and son by man's own efforts, by the works of the flesh, they just cannot go together. They cannot go together. 
God affirms, cast them out. Cast out the work of the flesh. Cast out the slave woman and her son. But know this. But know this, which is so awesome of our God. Know this. I, God says, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. Which is, which is, not, which is not a new statement, but rather honoring his promise made to Hagar back in chapter 16 of Genesis. When God hears the cries of the rejected, alone, and pregnant Hagar and visits her with this wonderful promise in verse 10 and 11 11 of that chapter, God says this, this is a promise. I will surely, she's weeping, right? God hears my cry. She names the place there of God heard me or saw me rather. And he visits her and he says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And that's a whole beautiful storyline in itself. But here we see the fulfillment of it. The Lord listened to Hagar's affliction, makes this promise to her, and shows to Abraham in this moment here in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 21, shows Abraham his undying faithfulness in keeping it. He's telling Abraham, I'm keeping this promise. I'm making a nation of this son. Our God is a promise keeper. God makes this promise to Hagar, who is cast out of her home for good. Last time, God says, go back. This time, what Sarah says is right. Cast her out. She's out for good. She cannot come back. Not to return. Sent into the wilderness with only some bread and a skin of water for her and her 16-year-old son, Ishmael. The two of them, very much fitting the picture of a widow and a fatherless child, and even that of sojourners. You know, they're just they're wandering the wilderness. They have no place to call home. Abraham is alive, yes, but this action of casting them out of his care, of his oversight, renders them in the same despairing predicament of Hagar being more or less a widow, and Ishmael as being fatherless, and both of them together as sojourners, just no home. They're just wandering the wilderness, alone in the wilderness, weak, destitute, and now afflicted with thirst, more or less, out of water, and in a place of just waiting to die. Hagar's like, I I can't, I can't, I can't bear to watch this. I'm just going to have my son, 16-year-old son here. I'm going to go an arrow's distance and just weep and just waiting to die. And that's captured for us in verses 15 and 16. And it's here, it's here where the Lord, the Lord who watches over the sojourners, who upholds the widow and the fatherless. That's Psalm 146.9, by the way. Another promise of our God, who he is. It is here in verses 17 and 18 of our text where this Lord of ours hears their cries 
and provides for them. Our God is a promise keeper and he fulfills his promise he made to Hagar. He hears their cries and provides for them. In verses 19 through 21, we see God provide water, so it's provisions for him. He provides in those verses an ability for Ishmael to make a living as becoming an expert with a bow. And then he ultimately provides a wife from his mom's homeland of Egypt, whereby God's promise to multiply Hagar's, Hagar's offspring is fulfilled, which he does. Through the line of Ishmael, a great nation indeed comes. So there's heartache in the storyline. Like that, the reality of that is, ah, that's hard. Yet it's another beautiful testimony of our God being a promise keeper. And now the why. Why was God okay with Hagar and Ishmael being cast out? Why did he affirm Sarah's demands to her husband, Abraham, to do so? I believe it has to do with what this storyline teaches us as an allegory. Teaching us that to walk in the freedom of God's promises, to walk in them, we must cast out the works of the flesh. Or in other words, enslavement to the law. We must cast that all out of our lives. Remember, remember this second point is stated as promise versus law. Or you could think of it this way. Freedom, <clears throat> freedom versus slavery. As I stated at the onset of this point, this is where God's word is going to apply an uncomfortable, uncomfortable amount of pressure for all of us. For walking in God's promises means we are walking in freedom. And this is easy to say, but not easy to fully do. Preacher, you, you said that this is an allegory. Like, where are you getting that? How do you, where are you getting that? Well, I'll show you. Turn, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Paul here is contending strong in this epistle against the works or against a works-based righteousness. Saying that if, if we are in Christ, if we believe all the promises of God find their yes in Christ, that if we believe in a righteousness of God that depends on faith, then we are sons of and fellow heirs to the promise, according to the offspring of Abraham. So if this is you, who you are, then the allegory of the free woman represented by Sarah 
and the slave woman represented by Hagar has a lesson to teach us. And this is what I intend in verses 21 through 31 of his argument in Galatians 4 to draw our attention to. For what it teaches us in regards to walking in the freedom God has promised and purchased for us in Christ. Let's go ahead and read those verses. Chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, this is Paul saying to the church, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted, interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present, present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And though it would take, it would take an entire sermon, if not more, to fully unpack what is in there, the key truth The key truth I want to draw our attention to in it is the application of walking in the freedom God has for us, which means is the application of, which means casting out all that would bring mockery, all that would go against all forms of persecution to the promise of righteousness that depends on faith in which we have in Christ and are to walk in the freedom of. This would be anything, anything that one would would do or impose upon others in thinking it adds to God's saving work in their life and one's right standing before God. Any work of the flesh, any like, I'm just, I'm helping God out. No, so to speak, like that, anything. The righteousness of God is a righteousness that depends upon faith. It is imputed righteousness on the merits of Christ's righteousness. He, his, his spotless, sinless, perfectly obedient, submitting to the Father's will and totality, life. Any work, any work of the flesh that would bring mockery to that must be cast out of our lives. If it shows its face, cast it out. That's what that's teaching us. And this includes, now listen, here's the pressure. This includes not being known. 
withholding who we are. What we're struggling with. What fears we have. What lies we are tempted to believe. What temptations we suffer from. What sins we are guilty of. Matt Chandler, a a pastor and author, stated it this way. He said, being 99% known is not being known at all. Being 99% known is not being known at all. If that is you, if if that is I, we are enslaved to that 1%. And if a slave to the 1%, then a slave we are. And are not fully walking in the freedom God promises we are able to walk in through the gospel of his beloved son. God promises righteousness by faith. And we have a sinful bent to challenge it with works of righteousness in the flesh either by adding to it or by putting up a facade to paint a picture of what is not real. Concealing that which is real, the very things God is calling us to walk in the freedom in. Concealing it keeps us enslaved to it. God is saying, cast that out. It doesn't belong. Galatians 5.1, the very first verse following that allegory. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The yoke of trying to, pursu- the yoke of trying to portray a facade of who we are not is a heavy and exhausting yoke to bear. Cast it out, God says. Consider this. If I, if I put myself, or if, if I put upon anyone else for that matter, something more, Christ plus this, you know, something to add to the finished work Christ has done to set me free, to set us free. If, if figuratively speaking, I say, I'm going to bear this additional burden, I'm just going to take this additional burden, this additional yoke, or, or here, you bear this additional yoke with me to add to the, one, to the light one Christ told us we are to bear alone. How, if that were to be the case, how would you describe me as being to myself? Or if imposed upon another, What would doing so describe me as being? Oppressive. Oppressive. And so also is the yoke of trying to portray a facade of who we are not. And saints, I I preach this not as one who is innocent and remaining enslaved. Please hear that. I love Piper's (laughs) a quote. He said, I I probably won't get it right, but he goes, as a preacher, I don't preach where I'm at. (laughs) 
know, I preach far and above, you know, what I'm aspiring to. I love that, and it is so true. So I, I preach this not as one who is innocent and remaining enslaved. But we must hear this word. We must hear this word from God and receive it into our hearts and in his strength act on it if, if we are to experience the fullness of the freedom Christ died to purchase for us. Because that's it. It cost him his life. Saints, he bore the shame and guilt of it all to set us free, to say, yes, this is true of me and I'm forgiven. Yes, this was who I am and where I'm presently at and I know I'm forgiven. And praise be to God, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all unrighteousness. His atonement touches everything. I am a child of God by faith and he who began a good work in me is faithful to bring bring it to completion. Like, do you hear that? He's not done with me. He's not done with you. No matter what baggage I bring, he, has not, he is not done with me, and I am free to be known. It is his burden to bear. He came to bear it for me. How dare I insult him by reaching to put it back on? Like, it is my redemption song I am to sing and give him praise for. All because, all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand, therefore, and do not submit again. We already had it. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. It is his burden to bear. Let him bear it. Whenever, whenever a yoke of slavery shows up to mock God's work of grace in your life, cast it out. Cast it out and live free. How, how does this look in relationships? I believe our closing point provides a helpful example of walking in this freedom of God's promises. Promise in relationships, our third and concluding point. Promise in relationships. An example of walking in this freedom of God's promises is shown to us by Abraham's dealings with Abimelech in the final verses of chapter 21, verses 22 through 34. Abimelech. That's a fun name to say, Abimelech. And do you remember him? This is, this is not the first interaction Abraham and Abimelech have had. I know Abimelech's commander is here, but the chief guy is Abimelech. The prior chapter, chapter 20, is dedicated to their meeting and first-time interaction. And I'll say this. Abimelech, he wins. Like he, he shines and Abraham doesn't in that chapter. Abraham clearly wrongs Abimelech clearly. Repeating a sin he has done in the past, he does it again. What's that sin? Being deceitful of who Sarah is. Namely, presents her as his sister and not his wife. He plays that sister card again. 
out of fear for his own skin. Just selfishness, right? Pride and selfishness there. And Abimelech, believing believing Abraham and Sarah's story, he sends for Sarah to take her to be one of his wives. And before he had approached her, meaning before he had any sexual relations with her, God visits him in a dream by night and says, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. <laughs> I mean, how terrifying is that? God starts with, you are a dead man. And this is God visiting him in a dream. That is by far, not, not beyond a nightmare. And there is a type of judgment that does come to his home. For God told him as a part of, of making things right, which Abimelech does. But, but a part of that, he needed Abraham to pray for Abimelech so that he shall live. Like, if this doesn't happen, you're going to end. And this included his whole household. For God had closed all the wombs of his house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. That's back in chapter 20. says that plainly. I mean, that's heavy. Heavy. Abimelech contended that he was innocent. And he was. He was deceived. Totally innocent. Yet, the acts of Abraham adversely affected Abimelech and his whole household. That's not a good start to the relationship. But God intervenes. God intervenes and peace is made between them. Peace is made between them. Now, how do we see this peace between them lived out and walking in this freedom of God's promises? Well, for starters... For starters, there is peace between them, right? There is peace. The gospel message is a message of peace. It promises peace. First and foremost, peace between us who are sinners and God who is holy. The gospel message is a message of peace. I mean, it's, it's part of the spiritual armor we are to put on. Ephesians six fifteen. And as shoes, these are all figuratively speaking, but as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. For in him, in Jesus, Colossians 1, 19 through 22, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Guess what? Making peace. Peace by the blood of his cross. And you, that's you and I, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, making peace by the blood of his cross. Gospel message is a message of peace. And this translates first, first and first. You've got to get that first and foremost vertically between us and God. 
but then also horizontally between one another. The hostility against one another in our world today is razor sharp. And the only remedy is the gospel of Jesus. That's the remedy. The gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the remedy. The prince of peace is the remedy. There was once not peace between Abimelech and Abraham. And now there is. And the example of this carries into the first few verses, verses 22 through 24, where Abimelech seeks to strengthen their now good and peaceful relationship as being neighbors by an oath or a promise. Let's go ahead and read that, 22 and 24, or through 24. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. He dealt wrongly with him before. Peace was restored. Abimelech, by oath, wants to strengthen that. That's a pleasant interaction, isn't it? Abraham swears, agrees to this promise between the two of them to live at peace with one another. And inevitably, as in life, this gets tested. (laughs) This gets tested. Verse 25 is the start of a whole other scene, okay? I know the verses are right next to each other, but it's a whole other scene. Time has passed between verses 24 and 25. It's a whole other scene. A scene in which a wrong has been committed and is being confronted between them a ripe example for us to learn from. Let's read through this dialogue, okay? Read through the dialogue between them on the matter, and I ask you to please pay attention to some marks of walking, some marks of walking in this freedom of God's promises. Note the respectful openness, the respectful openness that is present between them. They're very open, yet not defensive or hostile to any degree. Note that Abraham reproves Abimelech, which is, which is a correction given gently with kind intent. He doesn't raise an accusation against him. It's a reproof. Reprove against Abimelech who respectfully conveys his innocence. And then the eagerness they share to make things right along, or excuse me, the eagerness to make things right, right along with the great cost it comes to do so, which implies they take the matter seriously. 
they take the matter seriously and carefully, working together, work towards absolute resolve. They go to great lengths to ensure everything is clear and well between them. Let's read those verses 25 through 30. Take note of those highlights I just provided. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is, what is the meaning of these seven lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Let's read one more verse. Therefore that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. I mean, they just work that out beautifully, just with openness, maintaining that peace. And what is the result? They continue to live at peace with one another. And they mark the place of this covenant by naming it Beersheba. We just read that. Which, by the way, just a brief side note, because I just, I, it was important to me just to know this, like that's a place you can visit today, church. Last time I preached, we talked about you could visit where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be. Okay? You can visit Beersheba. It's the second largest city in Israel. Or, yeah, in Israel, second to Jerusalem. Like, that's a place. It's on the map. Beersheba, which means well of seven. That's what that means. Well of seven. Or well of the oath as named by Abraham and Abimelech, marking this occasion where peace between them was preserved and by oath, whereby they continued to live at peace with one another. And so should our aim be who walk in the freedom of God's promises purchased for us by Christ. As Paul states in Romans twelve eighteen, if possible... If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We know it's not always going to be possible, but so far as it depends upon you and the freedom Christ has purchased, do so. And the gospel message, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is God's promise provision to us as the way to do so. It's the way to do so, the only way to do so, for true peace and freedom to be walked in. And our God is a promise keeper. Always trustworthy and always faithful to his word. So like Abraham, like Abraham in verses 33 through 34, who plants a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called 
there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, and sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines, so should we, as sojourners ourselves, in this world, but not of it, so should we plant firm in our hearts, like a tree deeply rooted by a well, plant deep in our hearts to call upon the name of the Lord and worship this great everlasting God with all our lives unashamedly. Unashamedly. Walking in the freedom of God's promises purchased for us by Christ all the days of our lives. Our God is a promise keeper. Let's pray. Loving Father, I thank you. I thank you for your church. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your great and precious promises, even as Peter wrote about in his second epistle. What a magnificent God you are. And I pray in in however way, Holy Spirit, you you would take this word um, to be applying it, to be ministering, um, whether to be known or unknown. God, I just, I, I ask that it would be. And not just only in this moment, which I pray it is, but just even continuing on through this day, through the coming week, that we individually and as a church would be, strong, would be courageous to, to cast out anything that would be contending, to want to be occupying with the, the promise of the freedom we have in Christ. So gently, yet persistently, as our, our loving Father is, would you reveal that? Would you make known to our heart and mind and provide those opportunities to be further liberated and that which Christ has has purchased, that he would indeed bear the full burden of his atoning work for all of the the shame, the, the sin, the guilt that belongs to us. The cross has exchanged it. We've been set free. It has been placed on Christ. So would you lead us in that? I know it, it takes steps of faith. I pray for increased faith, a willing heart, and even as spoken this morning, obedience. For obedience and your promises go hand in hand. Help us obey. My God, help us obey. It's for our good and for your beautiful name. To the glory of our Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.